0: Good stuff. So welcome to the second episode of the podcast, the Bring It Coaching podcast. And on today's podcast and episode, I've got the one and only Dr. Gary Mendoza. How are you doing, Gary? Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for inviting us on. No problem. No problem. I mean, I know we've spoke previously and we've also done a podcast in the past. Um, but this time, things for me since then have changed a little um, and progressed and looking to sort of venture out more so on my own and discover. And I, I think we've had a few conversations in between that about a few things personally and my own business. I know we've chatted. And so yeah. things for me this time around are a little bit different. And the way I'm looking to take my own development and, you know, sort of service and offering to my own audience has sort of grown. So, just want to say thank you to yourself to begin with, um, for supporting myself when I have reached out to you. So you're always like, an for me, you, you are someone that's like an open book. um, and willing to hear and listen to um, myself, really. So thank you for that. No problem at all. Um, so I just want to, um, the reason why I brought you on, Gary, because I know that you're making a, a real big scene in the industry and I've been following you again for some time now. And so I think it's important to get, you know, your message further out there um, and let people know what you're about and stuff. So before we sort of go into, you know, your the, the specifics of what you're doing, so just tell me a bit about yourself, Gary, like how, who is Gary and how did you start and what led you to where you are today? Okey Um I started out, I was in
1: the Royal Air Force mm-hmm. and then I left there, I worked as a computer engineer for a few years and then retrained as a personal trainer. So I've actually been a personal trainer now for, I well, always we have to work this out. It's about <laughs> 33, 34 years now. I was one of the wow. first personal trainers in the UK. Brilliant. And I represented the UK at the first ever personal training convention uh, idea in America. Wow. So I've worked as a PT, I've managed gyms, I've managed leisure centers, I've managed country clubs for the Savoy. So I've kind of got broad experience. But the one thing I found working as a personal trainer was all my clients wanted to know about nutrition and I was forever blagging it, make it up as I went along, basically. <laughs> yeah. So I thought maybe I should learn about this. So cool. I decided to do a degree in nutrition. Mm-hmm. And by the time I, I've i now got a first class honours as in applied nutrition. And by the time I'd finished that, I was way more interested in nutrition and weight management. So I started I worked for future fit for over 10 years, delivering all their nutrition courses. I wrote all their nutrition courses Brilliant. and we found that the trainers I was training, they were coming back going, Oh, this really works. It's weight management. And like, and it wasn't rocket science. It was just mm-hmm. teaching people about sound nutrition, getting them more active, creating a calorie deficit. They lost weight. Oh, yeah. So I said to the company, we need to research this to find out what's going on. Cause it would be a really good bit of publicity. And so they sponsored me to do my PhD. So my PhD is in a multidimensional model for the treatment of male obesity in a community setting. That's a really long-winded title. (laughs) (laughs) But it's basically men's weight management. And it was personal trainers going out into the field, delivering this, my uh, course. But the key aspect of it really, I think, was the psychometric testing. It was testing whether people were psychologically ready to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what what I found was people will take on personal trainers even though they're not psychologically ready to change right and so what we did in the second part of my research I said to these trainers I said right if you take anyone on they've got to kind of meet this criteria psychologically and so we had like a screening process if you like Mm -hmm. and what and we got an 86% success rate so suddenly the success rate went through the roof because everyone that these trainers were working with was psychologically ready to kind of make a lifestyle change. Mm-hmm.
0: So they're more compliant with the program. Oh,
1: they- yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it made the trainers life easier and the clients got better results as well. So mm-hmm. I repeat, I then worked in uh, New Zealand for a couple of years, lecturing at Massey university in sports nutrition. And I repeated the research there with the Maori and South Pacific Islanders. We got exactly the same results, 86%. And Manawatu, which was the region where Massey University is, quite near Wellington, that whole region said, we want to adopt this as our weight management product. We want to train all our dietitians, nutritionists, um, social workers, whatever, in how to deliver this weight management system. But the only problem was they, because it was public health, they couldn't turn anyone away. So they could screen people, mm-hmm. but the problem was, well, what do you do with the ones that aren't ready to change? Mm-hmm. And so this is where I kind of came across motivational interviewing because mm-hmm. motivational interviewing lets you take somebody that's not ready to change and help them move to a point where they're ready to go. And so that's really where I kind of started to really get into the behavior change and the
0: psychology side of things. Yeah. It's, it's a massive, massive impact. Cause like you said, i've had even myself i've had clients in the past where they're all you you get into like the consultation process and just getting a a chat along with them and they're they're really hyped up ready to you know change and from what they say but their actions speak different um if they're not turning up or they're lacking in some areas and not they're not doing what you're asking them to do so this is a massive um Area of interest which definitely needs um, highlighting. Just before we go any further, I just wanted to go back to the career chain. Why did you do that? Like, what came about the career chain? Why did you head in this direction? I I worked,
1: like I say, when I came out of the forces, I worked as a computer engineer and I was one of only three or four people that could do my job. I was um, a telecommunications specialist, and the company that I worked for was an American company tandem and so all their computers are what they call non-stop they don't break down because everything's mirrored so they don't forget but the thing about that is they back all the stock exchange all your cash point machines are backed by them and so they're kind of critical infrastructure the Mm -hmm. role i did was national support for europe Mm
0: -hmm. and so
1: i only really got involved if things were really going pear-shaped and like the banks were really kicking off so Mm -hmm. it was majorly stressful right and i loved it i loved doing it but i was getting really bad headaches and stuff right and i went to my doctor and we and they literally did brain scans at king's college and god knows what and in the end my my own gp fair play to him i wish i could kind of meet him again he Mm. said to me he said this is stress related he Mm. says so you've got a choice you either put up with this he says i doubt you'll see your 50s he Mm. says "Or you make a career change he wow. said, because you're not coping with the stress really well. Wow. And so it was like, it was fairly black and white. You know, he like uh, mm-hmm. put, put his cards on the table and said, here we go. So I'd always been into fitness. I played rugby for the Air Force. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll switch then. So I switched from a really well-paid, high-paid yeah. job mm-hmm. to start from scratch as a personal trainer which nobody knew what they were anyway so
0: yeah I mean I mean that's a bit of a gamble yeah that's like if you were to say to someone that now making that career change in the current climate of the industry you could probably say yeah like a lot of people are doing it and they've got a better chance but from where you did it from back then it wasn't much around at all like that must have been a scary thought scary like jump to do that
1: do you know what? I don't think I thought it through very much. I just decided. <laughs> I, I just decided I need to make a career change, or I wasn't yeah. going to live that long. So it's like, okay, well, I love fitness. I'll do that. Wow. And I kind of thought, well, personal training. At least I've got a load of skills. Maybe I can manage a gym or whatever. Because wow. I had management training and that from when I was in the forces. Mm-hmm. And I was very fortunate that the first job I got was managing old hall leisure which is a very upmarket leisure club in chester and i was able to personal train clients in there and right. so i, I kind of hit the ground running and then when i when i went to the states to represent um great britain as a personal trainer i got a load of press coverage in the local paper saying oh you know the first personal trainer in britain is going to america and blah blah and when i came back i said to the paper I said, look, it would be a really good idea if I maybe trained one of your journalists so mm-hmm. as people can see what personal training is. Because up until then, people only really knew, oh, celebrities in Hollywood have personal trainers. Because right. in the UK, that, there weren't any. No right. gyms had personal trainers. And so mm-hmm. I did that. And, and off the back of that, I then ended up writing a column in the paper every week. Mm-hmm. And because I was in the paper every week, I then became the go-to person. And so I was able to leave the management role in Old Hall Leisure and go out on my own as a self-employed personal trainer because I then had sufficient clients. Mm-hmm.
0: So you establish so. your authority almost by consistently just posting up in this article and just being well, there.
1: Well, yeah. And I always advise trainers to do this, write to your local paper because I always maintain journalists are lazy. And Mm -hmm. so, if you've got somebody writing in going, "Oh, I can write about the latest fitness fad, and this is what I think about fat loss, or this is what I think about this exercise," they won't maybe won't use it. Mm -hmm. But if you do it a few times, you might just hit lucky when it's like a quiet news week, and they'll go, "Oh, do you know what that guy keeps pestering us? Why don't we use his article?" And once you've got your foot in the door, it's like it's Mm -hmm. uh, like I say, I ended up writing my own fitness column every week, and and at that point, I didn't have a other than my personal training qualifications, I didn't have a degree or anything. But wow. it, it like you say, you suddenly you become the authority. So there's mm-hmm. definitely an element of people always say, "Oh, you were lucky." It's like, well, I kind of made my
0: own luck mm-hmm. really because I just persisted, and mm-hmm. things fell into place. So, what what do you think? Like most trainers these days are sort of um, lacking. Then is it is it like the case of there's too much competition? You think people just give up too easily? Like what what do you, what's your take on that? I think there is a lot of competition. You've got to accept
1: that. You are not mm-hmm. going to go out and because I think some trainers make the mistake of because I and I think it's partly the training company's fault because they tell people, oh, yeah, train as a personal trainer, you'll be on 35k a year and blah blah. And it's like, I don't know that many personal trainers that are earning that much. Mm-hmm. And but also, you you've you've kind of got to go out there you've got to go and find the customers so you need business skills you need mm-hmm. marketing skills now you can either go and learn them or employ somebody to do your marketing for you right and it's kind of similar with nutrition i think you either get you need to learn nutrition properly not just like a two-day course mm-hmm. or work with someone collaborate with a registered nutritionist or a dietitian. right but you've got you need to find a niche you need to find something that's unique to you first off who do you like working with Mm -hmm. is it older generation younger generation male female pregnant post pregnant post menopause you know find find where your niche is who you want to work with Mm -hmm. and then really become an expert in that area and as I say, get marketing advice, definitely, because that was the mistake I made when I first became self-employed. Right. Coming, coming back to the UK after being in New Zealand, I tried to do the marketing myself and had some success. But once I employed someone and got some proper advice, that's when it took off. Got, yeah. got, but, yeah. but you definitely want a niche. And this is why I, I push behaviour change, because... I think there are not that many personal trainers or trainers in general that have got good behavior change skills. Right. And ultimately when you go to a trainer, whether you be an athlete or whether you want to just get a bit fitter or whether you're worried about your health, the bottom line is any of those people are going to have to make some type of lifestyle change. Mm -hmm. And so as a coach trainer, you need to understand how to help people make that change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's not just simply just giving them an exercise program or a few nutrition plans and off you go with it. It's it's trying to reverse long last like habits that have been embedded within them throughout. Yeah, the I mean, you've got, years.
1: You're right. A 40 year old client who's been doing whatever they've been doing for the last mm. 20, 25 years. They're not going to change in the next three weeks. It's mm. like you're going to have to really work at this. And they are as well. It's got to be a collaborative effort. right? But you need to understand how people make changes so as you can kind of then explain that to the client Mm. so they understand what the journey is going to be and that it's not going to be a quick fix. All these people that hand out six-week transformation and 12-week transformation, I think it sends the wrong message Mm. because you're kind of saying, do this program and then you're fixed. And it's like right. well, no, whatever you do, you need to be able to do now for the rest of your life, right. because that's what's going to a get you to where you want to be, but more importantly, keep you there. Because we're we're really good at weight loss. Follow any radical weird diet you want; you'll lose weight generally, simply because it creates a calorie deficit. Mm-hmm. But what we're not very good at is weight maintenance. Mm. In other words, when we get to the weight we want to be keeping that weight at that weight because what tends to happen is people follow some radical program lose the weight get that bit fitter and then they just go back to doing what they did in the first place normally did yeah and and i always say to clients i say look it's your lifestyle that got you fat so only (laughs) change only changing that lifestyle is going to get you thinner again and it's like you kind of have to buy into that
0: yeah but i'm just thinking about about that what you just said is why is it the fact that um, people are drawn to these short-term fixes? And, and, and is it because it doesn't sound sexy to try and put in the effort to, to work out as a, as a lifestyle change? Like, who's responsible for that, that message? What do you think about that? We live in a society that's instant
1: gratification. Mm. We, mm. we want a pill to fix it. We mm. want the short-term program. We want an app right it's got to be done in a few weeks so right. and and we've got this mentality of oh yeah I've got to fix it quick, and we don't buy into that longer term thing and I totally agree with what you say there it doesn't sound sexy mm. oh this it will take you the next two years <laughs> to get fit and healthy mm-hmm. that's that's a difficult sell mm. I always Mary Barassi who was my, my supervisor she was my head when i did my applied nutrition degree and she was one of my supervisors on my phd Mm -hmm. and she said to me and i always remember this she said the problem with sound nutrition is it's not sexy right and i kind of didn't get it at the time but i do now because Mm -hmm. it's like well it doesn't sound very thrilling just eat more fruit and veg cut down on your takeaways don't have as much alcohol Mm. No, that, that, no, we want the magic food that's going to kind of burn fat for us or whatever.
0: Yeah, well, it's that when you say that, it's to me that what what I just thought. Then it's like we're trying to minimize the foods that give us the pleasure that give us that instant like feel good. So when when, yeah. when we say that to people, it's like it's like it's unheard of. Or why should I do that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that that's what comes to my mind. It's just like, when it, I want wonder- to I want to get fit I want to get healthy but I don't I don't want to do the work work, yeah so how does it compare to when you first started off to now then like obviously there's a lot more attention around social media and and more pressure on people to to look a certain way like what was it back then compared to now in the sense of how would you have gotten people to stick it out for long term was there more of a, a marketing message around the fact that it's going to take a year two years three years compared to now?
1: No, I don't, I don't think there was. And I think this was half half the problem. I mean, social media has just made life even more difficult mm. because now people continually are bombarded with messages that say we can fix this in six weeks, 12 weeks. Like say, all the Instagram pictures with filters and God knows what, this is what you should look like. Or mm. this is the way you should be. This is the life you should be leaving, leading.
0: Right, right,
1: right. And people wanting to be famous and be a celebrity. And when you say to them, well, what do you want to be famous? Or what do you want to be a celebrity for? They go, well, nothing, I just want to be famous. It's like, they don't want to have achieved anything or proved mm-hmm. anything or invented anything. They just want to be famous. It's just, it's a totally different world we live in. And I think it was one of the things that we discovered when I worked for Future Fit, And as I say, because I was, that was the first time I think a training company in the UK had actually employed a registered nutritionist. Mm-hmm. Up until then, every single training company, I think I'm right in saying, was just using Joe Blogs to do their nutrition. Right. Who most probably, nine times out of 10, did not have a degree in nutrition. Oh and my. so they actually weren't very well qualified to even write the nutrition program, let alone teach it. Mm-hmm. And so I changed the culture, certainly within FutureFit, in that now you've got to have a degree in nutrition if you're going to be a tutor for us
0: in nutrition Mm -hmm. so what was was your burning like it sounds like you had like a burning desire to to make this change and and to cultivate this you know this sound principles of nutrition like what was that what was your driving factor for that then
1: I think it's interesting because I I did my nutrition degree as I said to you solely with the intent of I just want to learn more about nutrition because I'm blagging it And by the time I'd done finished my degree three years down the line, I was like absolutely fascinated by nutrition. i would kind of lost interest in personal training to be frank. It was like, no, no nutrition is way more interesting. So I was really into (laughs) it, but obviously I needed to work. And at that time it was quite difficult to get jobs in nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so I started work with future fit, teaching their level three PT course and teaching gym instructor. But because I had the nutrition skills, they said, well, you write the nutrition course for us. And off the back of writing that and seeing how it kind of enlightened PTs when they were taught nutrition properly, Mm -hmm. it became really obvious to me that, look, as an industry, we should be doing better at this because we're we're not good at it. Mm -hmm. And things have improved slowly. I mean, now you've got um, the AFN, the Association for Nutrition, certifying training companies nutrition courses so right at long last we're starting to get nutrition training that is evidence-based and not just based on the whim or whatever somebody thought they knew about nutrition so
0: now the training companies they can't blag their nutrition content to the trainers now
1: well i hope not i mean you still hear stories of some things that are being taught which are a bit worrying but right I hope what happens now is when trainers do do the nutrition part of their level three training, they realize how little they know and maybe think, well, I either want to go and learn more or I'm going to collaborate with somebody and do my training that way. I always think collaboration is the way to go because you can either be a personal trainer or you can be a registered nutritionist. If you want to do both then you've got to get properly qualified in both Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's no shortcut to
0: that no no just just one question for that um so now that you had all this experience in nutrition and knowledge going back to that point where you was in the previous job do you think that maybe it was your your nutrition that was um sort of triggering the stress even more would you have changed what you know now based on the food and all the nutrition stuff anything going going back to that job that you was in the highly stressful job do you think your nutrition played a part towards that stress was there any change that you would have made
1: I, I think I would have improved my diet I mean the thing mm-hmm. was even when I was in that job I exercised regularly I still loved it I always used to go to the gym and mm-hmm. kind of literally five in the morning wow. and train for an hour before going into work so I was yeah. always really conscious of my fitness because i was kind of always into that but mm-hmm. my diet was rubbish i mean i was living on coffee and mm-hmm. snacks and god knows what because i was sat in in a control room as a, an engineer online basically yeah. and it was my problem was i couldn't let problems go it's like if 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 a fault came up mm-hmm. I, i'd work on it during the day and then i'd go home and i'd still think about it it's like i just right. couldn't let i'm that yeah, type yeah. of personality where it's just like no i've got to solve that it's really <laughs> bugging me i would literally sometimes wake up in the middle of the night two three in the morning and think i know what the answer to that is and then oh, i'd yeah. I li- get out of bed going to work and, and fix it because i couldn't lay there in bed thinking i'm sure that's what the fix is Oh
0: man! and so yeah the it was kind of my own personality which yeah. was my
1: downfall, I
0: think. Yeah. Cause I'm just thinking now, like, you know, there's a, probably a lot of people, uh, people out there who are in that position that you were once in and it could just be a few tweaks of nutrition. That's going to allow them to, you know, just relieve some of the stress. So, you know, I've come across a lot of, you know, high earning clients and um, constantly just work mode on. So, what, what would be the sort of advice for people in that position who are constantly you know having to run like a, a business or a high earning paid trying to balance the, their food with the with the workplace? What, what would you say to someone like that? I work
1: with a couple of CEOs of quite big companies mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they are just they're they're just kind of my personality, you know, that they, they do 16, 18 hour days, ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But I say to them and I make them diarize exercise I say put it into your diary as an appointment that's a so mm. non-negotiable oh, yeah and and they when when I first start work with them they're like oh I don't know if I can do that I'm saying look if you go and do 45 minutes of exercise whether it's just go out for a walk or whatever mm. you will get that back in spades in terms of your productivity mm. the reduction in stress your kind of future outlook lowering your blood pressure all those type of things and i said similar with diet don't overlook it because if you've got good diet it will actually make you better at your job Mm -hmm. and it's really it is an education process and getting them educate them about what the rather than just going oh you need to do it because it's healthy nutrition Mm -hmm. you need to get buy in from them and this is where the behavior change skills come in because it's helping them discover their reasons why exercise stroke activity. I don't like using the word exercise. I prefer to talk about activity. Getting them to find out why activity may be beneficial for them. Now, much as a lot of fitness professionals go on about, oh yeah, but it's being fit and being healthy. That's your particular values and beliefs. Mm -hmm. For a lot of these guys and women that are in these high powered jobs, their driving focus is success in their career. Or earning more money and so you have to get them to realize how being a bit more active having better diet is going to improve those things earn them more money get them better careers whatever because that's their values so and that's a behavior change skill it's understanding getting the client to find out what their values are and then getting them to tap into that so as they see the behavior change as that's really going to benefit me because it moves me in the direction I want to go,
0: yeah, close to the goal, yeah, and that's interesting you say that because a lot of people that I've talked to and, and who are you know interested in training with us it's it's always the surface level stuff of when I get fit, when I get healthy, and then it's it really does take some time before you can really just <laughs> try to dig out. Peel the layers back, as I like to say, like on your peel, you're trying to just peel the layers back until you're really trying to understand what it is they want. So, and I I guess, is that part of the motivation uh, interviewing process that you undertake then? It's part of motivational interviewing,
1: but actually, that is more of a cognitive behavioral technique Mm -hmm. as a thing called um, Socratic questioning. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it teaches the client how to ask themselves critical questions. of honest questions so like you were saying peel back the layers Mm. so when they say i want to get fit you would say why do you want to get fit Mm. and they might go oh well because i know that being fits really good for me and so then if you were using socratic questions it's a bit like being the annoying child i always describe it (laughs) where the kid just keeps going yeah, but why? why? Yeah. And when you give them an answer, they go, yeah, but why is that? Yeah. And so it's kind of that thing. So then they go, well, I'll, because I'll be a bit healthier. Okay, well, what would be the benefits to you then, career-wise and lifestyle-wise, if you're a bit healthier? Oh, will I be able to do that? I'll be able to do that. And okay, if you were able to do that and do that, what would that bring you? And so, like you say, you, you keep peeling it back until you find out what the real kind of what, what we would call a driving need is as opposed to a surface need driving Just when need, you ask right. anybody any question why do you want to do that you'll get their surface need mm. but if you use Socratic questioning and kind of keep digging mm. you'll start to find what the driving need is and that's kind of what's running the show it's what's at the subconscious level
0: right and it's and as a coach it's our job to try to lead them the way forward to that to the underlying driving need.
1: Yeah. Help, help them find their driving need mm. because what you always get when a client first signs up with you or first speaks to you will be the superficial reason, kind of that surface thing. Right. Oh, I want to be a bit fitter. I need to lose a bit more weight. Yeah. Yeah. Why? What, what, what in your life is going to be better if you lose a bit more weight? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, it'll mm-hmm. be da, da, da. Okay. And if you've got da, 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 how would that help you? And, and what you'll find is, the client's responses slow down and what I mean by that is when they when you initially ask the question they've got the answer they're ready straight away because it's in Mm. your conscious Mm. but as you keep digging away they're going to have to start accessing their subconscious and unconscious and what you'll see the client doing quite often if you're doing it right they'll start to look up they'll go quiet they'll be looking up and that shows they're God, they're really trying to find the answer uh, now. Yeah.
0: yeah and it,
1: yeah. that's what you really want. You want to find that underlying because that's what's going to keep them in your program.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you think that people discover it more? Like one, if they were to join, and you haven't really touched too deep on why they are here, but do you think as let's say you enter, they they do come onto the program, do you think they will discover it more as they go along the journey or is it part of no. our job to find that no, not, it's, not it's
1: part of your job to make really sure that they are ready to make changes? Because the one oh. thing that came out of my research was people will employ trainers if they're, even though they're not psychologically ready. Mm. And I think what happens is, and this is my hypothesis, they take on the trainer in the misguided belief that the trainer will have all the answers right and so every time they hit a barrier it'll be oh how do i do that what should i do now what should i eat now Mm -hmm. if you continue just respond like that and so they're kind of in motivational interviewing terms we we call it we call it being in a one-up position in other words the client sees you as having all the answers and maybe that bit better than them Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is not how you want to be working with a client. You want an even relationship where the client feels it's a collaboration. Right. And so they try and find their answers. They won't always be able to. And that's where you can use your expertise and kind of what I would say guide them, mm-hmm. point them in the right. So rather than just going, right, this is what you need to do which is a directing style. It's kind of follow me. Here we go. Mm -hmm. You want to be alongside them going, well, there's a few options. You might look at this. You could look at that. You might think about that out of those, which sounds like the one that will work for you. They'll consider it a bit then Mm -hmm. and they'll plump for one of them generally. And so then we go with that. Now, the beauty of that is you've used your skill to kind of offer up what some of the answers might be but they've opted for the one that sounds best for them. So they feel that it's a collaboration. And so you've respected their autonomy, their their right to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And what we do know is that when coaches are autonomy supportive, it builds empathy. And so the client feels like, oh, this guy or this girl is really there for me. And, And that will move them forward because we know that empathic coaches get far better results than coaches who lack empathy.
0: Wow. So building that empathy is really important. And do you think, I mean, empathy in itself, I mean, I guess it's a skill we can learn, but I think, is that something that everyone has? I mean, I guess a childhood experience builds that from the mother father relationship with the parents. So is that, I mean, someone who hasn't maybe had that, where parents have been absent, or for if the childhood experience wasn't great, that that could be quite tough for a coach to learn and, and grasp. Really, if they haven't really felt any empathy from extended family or direct parents, like, how would you go about, you know, learning that? Then is it just a case of just coming and learning different skills or developing yourself personally and stuff? Is that something you guys do on your courses? And
1: yeah, I think empathy. We know. Can be improved, but I think you've got Mm. to have an element of it, and and I think you're right. It's a self development thing, Mm, mm. and and I do think that all coaches need to be aware of self development. Mm. What am I doing to make me a better coach? What what do I need to learn? So I I'm a firm believer that it it would be really helpful in the industry for personal trainers to have some degree of counselling skills. Of what? Sorry of counselling skills. Counselling skills, right, okay. Because from my experience working as a personal trainer, you end up being a counsellor for most of your clients anyway because, (laughs) yeah, yeah, they'll ask you about exercise and you might write exercise programmes and you'll advise them on nutrition, but they will come to you with a whole bunch of other stuff, whether it be their personal relationships, Mm -hmm. what's going on in work or whatever. So you need a degree of counselling skills and a big part of that is Mm self-awareness and empathy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so understanding that and working on that is really important in the introduction to behavior change workshop which i've got online it's only a short course it's a little e-learning course Mm -hmm. but within that is the thing called the jihari window Mm -hmm. and it's it's a self-development tool so and it looks at what i know about myself what I think other people know about me, Mm -hmm. what I think other people don't know about me. And then finally, what people know about me that I don't know. So, and by understanding all those four things, you can build the the most important one, which is what I know about me and what people think about me, because you can change that. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The one that's difficult to uncover is what other people think about me that I don't know. Right. because I might have a perception or oh, everybody loves me and it's great and blah, blah. But actually when you speak to people in confidence, somebody like, oh, is he's overconfident, he's cocky or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So being open to learning that is
0: so important because you then become just a better coach. Right. Right. Oh, man, that's, that's really good to hear. Um, cool. So I want to, I want to move forward onto the actual um, stages of behavior change. Mm -hmm. so if I'm aware there's, I mean, four stages, um, that being said that that you guys teach the four stages. So the first one being pre contemplation stage, um, you ever just talk a bit about that and, and, uh, just share with the viewers what it's about. Right. So the stages of
1: change model was first proposed by Patatska and D Clemente, and it was first used in, um, smoking cessation and alcohol, um, abuse mm-hmm. and so those Patatsco and Dicamenti said that when people make changes they go through these four stages mm-hmm. you start off as a pre-contemplator which is basically you're not thinking about the problem you're not bothered or whatever and I'm sure all of us know maybe people that smoke mm-hmm. and you could say to them oh you don't want to smoke you'll get cancer whatever they wouldn't be interested mm-hmm. they don't want to know they're going to smoke not interested at all that would be a pre-contemplator They're not even thinking about making a change. Mm -hmm. The next stage is contemplation. And this is where people are kind of weighing it up. So if you were to say to like, if you take exercise, for instance, if somebody's contemplating making a change around exercise, maybe signing up with a trainer, joining a gym, whatever, they may think, oh yeah, I really do need to get fit. I think that would be be beneficial for me, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure I've got the time or yeah getting fit would be great i'll be able to fit into better clothes but i don't i don't want all the soreness and that that comes with exercise or whatever so there's always a positive statement what what they can see a benefit Mm -hmm. but then we have what we call a balancing statement which is where you get the butt in the middle right and then you get the cons so it's pros and cons right and one janice and Mann, who are two other psychologists they propose that when people make changes in their life they weigh up the pros and cons mm. and if the pros outweigh the cons we make the, change. make the change if the pros and cons are about the same we will not do anything about it and mm. if the cons outweigh the pros we are definitely doing nothing about it yeah. Yeah. so a contemplator can see as many pros as they can cons they are in what what in motivational interviewing terms we call it they're in a state of ambivalence They can't really decide which way to go. They're sitting on the fence. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: The next stage was added later and it's called preparation. It's a fairly short stage, about six to 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. And what you see with somebody in preparation is the balance has tipped a bit. The pros kind of outweigh the cons now, and they are now weighing up. They may be talking to a trainer or they're doing a bit of research online about different gyms or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's no guarantee they will do anything but they're kind of at least leaning that way a bit. Ultimately, pros will outweigh the cons enough, and they will move into the next stage, which is action. They're doing something about it. They sign up with you as a trainer. They join the gym. They buy a diet book. They join Weight Watchers, whatever it may be. They're in action. They're taking steps. Mm -hmm. The action phase can last anywhere six months to a year is the general accepted but there's no black and white number it's not like it's this many weeks and that's it mm-hmm. and then hopefully if whoever the trainer coach is when they've got their client in action they ultimately achieve their goal and they get to maintenance and yeah. maintenance is the phase where you maintain whatever gains successes you do and that's the bit we're not very good at we get right. people into action we write the diet plan. We write the exercise program. They do it for six, 12 weeks. And then they hit what is known as relapse.
0: Mm-hmm. Something
1: goes wrong and they think, ah, oh, it, I'm giving up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and then they can relapse. And you can relapse from being in action all the way back to pre-contemplation. Wow. So you can be in action one moment, something goes wrong and you think, oh, sod it. And you go right the way back to pre-contemplation and you don't want to hear about it anymore equally you might just relapse back to preparation or contemplation it you know it will differ with everyone and this is why being able to measure where somebody is on that spectrum is so important because Mm -hmm. not only will it tell you whether they're ready to change but as time goes along if you test regularly which the trainers in my research they tested every four weeks. The data will tell you how well your program is working. Because if the program is working, things should be moving in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, the numbers are going in the wrong direction. It gives you, you a heads up early to think, I've got to do something here, or this client's going to drop out. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of able to get in there and find out what's going wrong. Because you might be thinking, oh, I'm doing a great job, and the mm-hmm. clients are loving it. And actually, they're on the verge of dropping
0: out. Right. So, there's got to be communication or some process in place along their journey to just see where their mindset's at, what stage that they are working towards. Yeah, work.
1: communication is such an important thing, I think. <laughs> when you learn motivational interviewing, one of the best skills that you'll learn is what we call active listening. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of hanging on every word. A lot of people think they're good listeners, right? And it's not really till you learn motivational interviewing that you realize I'm not bad, but I definitely could be better. Mm -hmm. And you do become a way better listener. And the beauty of that is you will pick up on signals that are saying there's a problem here somewhere. I don't quite know what it is, but I can feel Mm. in the language or whatever that There's something we need to work on because in motivational interviewing, every time you meet a client, doesn't matter how long you've worked with them, you always go through the same processes. And the very first process is what we call engagement. And that engagement is just getting on board, finding how the week's going, what's happening in their life, that type of thing. And a lot of people overlook that. And they kind of the client turns up and they've known them for months, and they're just like, "Oh, how's it going? Let's crack on." Mm-hmm. So they they kind of papered over what could be a big problem. Whereas had they spent a bit of time making sure they got they checked out what was really going on and what's happening, they might have picked up on, "Oh, I've got this problem coming up," and problem with work or problem with the family or one of the kids or so whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But if you can pick up on that stuff. Then you, it, it kind of saves you firefighting when they suddenly go, I'm, I'm leaving the program. I can't cope with it.
0: Because at that point, it's going to be quite hard to pull them back. Pull them back in, yeah. Okay, so interesting. Just going back to that first stage, like what is it about that pre contemplation <clears throat> stage where, you know, people are, is it just a case of people totally in a way? Like I can think of times, even in like personal relationships, there's only so much you can say to someone um, about changing changing habits, but you've got to sort of lead by example. And I think that for me personally has worked in my personal relationships, in business, just by leading and not talking as much, sends a powerful message out to people. So by doing that, taking that action, is that going to be a driving factor for people to go from that first stage, pre-contemplation, to a contemplation stage? Now, There's nothing. I think
1: coaches often make the mistake of, oh, I can fix this. I can tell Mm -hmm. you what to do. Mm -hmm. You're often hear, Oh, your job as a coach is to motivate people. (laughs) I disagree with that because the best type of motivation is what we would call intrinsic motivation. It comes Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. self-determination theory. Now Mm -hmm. intrinsic motivation comes from within Mm -hmm. you find it for yourself. The type of motivation that some of these trainers are talking about is what we would call extrinsic motivation or external motivation. And that's not very effective. Mm -hmm. And so your role as a coach should be to guide your client. So as they find their own motivation. Now, part of that process is actually education, because one of the things that will build intrinsic motivation is competence. So the fact that a client feels able to do a certain exercise or prepare a certain meal or go shopping and buy the right things, if they feel they've got the skills, that's building their competency and that in itself builds intrinsic motivation. Mm. But it's no good me as a coach going, right, I want you to buy this. I want you to prepare that meal. And I want you to do this every day because Mm. there's there's nothing that they're finding for themselves to go. Yeah, I really want to do that. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: if you've got a pre-contemplator client, and you will get them, and I I think the group that are going to be most susceptible to getting clients that are pre-contemplators, anybody that works in GP referral. Right. Because if a GP is sending somebody to a trainer, Mm -hmm. does that person really want to be there? Or are they just going because the GP said, I'm not giving you any more prescriptions on prescribing exercise. That's what you've got to do. Right. So there's a real risk that those people are pre contemplators. Mm. The other group will often be people that are put under peer pressure. So their mates are saying, oh, you put on a bit of weight. You're not looking too good. You need to get fit or whatever, or someone in the family, even because I've had this husband and wife where the husband has actually said to the wife, you need to lose some weight. You need to get a bit fitter and i remember i remember working with this was when i was in cardiff managing the gym and she told me this that the husband had said that i said i don't think it's you i need to work with i think it's your husband with that type of attitude and she loved that that got her on board straight away but it just shows you that don't think that because somebody has turned up to sign up with you or take out a membership that psychologically they're ready because they may not be there. They may be there for a whole host of other reasons. And your role as the coach, as the gym manager, whatever it might be, is help them find their own reasons. Cause then they're more likely to stay there.
0: Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Brilliant. So just going to the next one, the contemplating stage. So, you know, people are weighing up their options thinking yep. about, should I go for it? Should I not, you know, just going back to that gp referral like i find that interesting you said like people may not still want to be there because a the gp has sent them but isn't that like a, in your situation where it was like a make or break like you had to make that decision and you also you found it for yourself so i guess is that to say not everybody will have that and find it, and had that authoritarian figure even though they're telling them you need to do something about it you're saying that people can still be reserved about that shouldn't that shouldn't that just take them through to that actually this person because we all view the the gp as the expert Mm -hmm. and you know shouldn't that be enough for people to just say like okay i need to actually go into that contemplation stage and do something now but
1: but you see my gp and this is why i've I've always thought i'd love to meet him again Mm -hmm. he was actually really am i consistent in the way that he gave me the advice right because he said right we found nothing there there's nothing in your blood work, there's nothing on the scan. He said, So having spoken to a few people about this, referred your case to neurologists, whatever, the general consensus is this is a, these headaches are stress based. Right. He said, so you've now got a number of options. He said, you either put up with it and we can maybe medicate it or whatever. He said, but ultimately the outcome from that is not going to be good. Or you consider making some type of career choice, but ultimately the choice is down to you. So mm-hmm. he didn't go, this is stress related. You've got to stop with that job. Now he gave me the choice. He gave me the information and allowed me to make the choice. Mm-hmm, and that's man. what you should be doing as a coach. Mm-hmm. The client comes to you and they will have, like you say, if, if they're in contemplation, they're going to have pros and cons. Now, one of the things I get, as you know, from the MI is, we can use what we call a decisional balance grid where you get people to write down their pros and their cons, and then you get them to think a year ahead and write down the pros of not changing and the cons of not changing. Often that's enough for you as a coach to identify some of the things that they're putting as cons Mm -hmm. actually are not true. So let's just say it was losing weight, getting a bit fitter. They might put pros to be, get healthier, get into smaller clothes, have a bit more energy, whatever it might be. But they may have in their cons list, I'm going to have to give up alcohol. I'll never be able to eat chocolate. I'm Mm -hmm. always going to be hungry. Now we know none of those are true. Mm -hmm. And so with education, we can help them shift that balance. We're not going to just go, no, that's all wrong. You've got it all wrong. Mm -hmm. But if you educate in the right way, then they will come to a decision themselves. Like, oh, that's not so much of a con. Actually, I can take that one off. And so what's happening is you can slowly shift that decisional balance, but you're allowing them to make the shift.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. So once again, just guiding them through the process, isn't it? Yeah. And, and Yeah, and that's, yeah. So just going on to the next one, the action, you typically say like it's between six months to a year, but obviously everybody's different. So at that stage, isn't it, isn't, desire and the discipline there enough to keep people on track so if it was
1: if that was the case everybody that went into action Mm -hmm. would lose weight would get fit they would never go back again Mm -hmm. and yet we know that does not happen Mm -hmm. so why is that they've obviously gone in if they're in action by definition pros must be outweighing the cons Mm -hmm. but what can happen over time is the cons can start to build up Right. Oh, it's too difficult. I'm finding it very hard. I'm not able to find the time. I'm a bit too busy with work. I can't fit it in because of this. You know, lots of reasons pop up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to help them understand that this will happen. And and I always say to trainers when you first start with a client, it's well worth explaining the stages of change Mm. in terms of this is the journey we're going to go on together. But the most important part to explain to your client is relapse right. <clears throat> and they go why would you do that why would you tell them about when they have a problem and they're going to drop I said because if you don't talk about it when it does happen they're going to catastrophize it so something will go wrong and they'll just go oh well that's it I've messed it all up I might as well carry on eating the takeaways i'll sod it i'll I'll, I'll start again next Monday <laughs> and then they have go mad over the weekend, eat everything, drink and everything. Monday comes around and they just think that's screwed up. Now i I'll sod it. I'll leave it. And they just drop out of the program. Mm -hmm. And it can sometimes be quite a gradual thing. But if you've talked to them about relapse, when it happens and they, they, you know, you ring them on the, why have you not turned up for training today? Oh, well this happened and it's rubbish and I've eaten the takeaway. You can then go, do you remember when we first met, we talked about relapse and how you were going to manage it. And Mm -hmm. they go, oh, yeah, I I kind of vaguely remember. I said, right, okay, so what I want you to do is I don't want you to treat this as failure. I want you to treat it as feedback, learn something Mm -hmm. from it. And I want you to sit down and just think it through and think, okay, this is always going to happen because that's life. Mm -hmm. How can I manage it better next time it happens? Mm -hmm. And as long as you learn, that's been a really valuable experience to you. And now you can crack on. So Mm -hmm. don't see it as failure. See it as feedback. Don't catastrophize it. It's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And then teach your clients how to deal with it, how to manage it. Mm -hmm. Because in psychological terms, that type of relapse, where they kind of think, "I'll sod it, it's known as the what the hell effect. Right. And and it's basically, it goes wrong and they go, oh, what the hell? (laughs) I'm going to finish the pizza. (laughs) I'm going to finish the bottle of wine
0: yeah yeah so
1: if you understand that the what the hell effect is part of human nature and it's for all of it, it's not a failing on your behalf it's it happens to all of us and so understanding that and understanding the behavior change process again it comes down to do you as a coach understand the behavior change process because you need to explain it to your client Mm -hmm. so as they know what that journey will look like
0: Mm -hmm.
1: because if they don't when they hit a bump in the road they're just going to bail out
0: yeah yeah it's all over mm-hmm. yeah okay brilliant stuff there gary i mean i really appreciate that learning something new every every time i speak to yourself gary so um let's just go into the the courses and the, what is it you guys are offering i know you mentioned before we hit record on this you've got uh, you're preparing some some course um for was it for behavior change or was that more nutrition yeah yeah i've got yeah
1: Kind of three main courses There's an introduction to behavior change workshop which is just e-learning it's mm-hmm. fairly cheap it's kind of three four hour course that you do yourself self-paced you'll get some tools from it you'll learn a bit about yourself you then got the main workshop which is behavior change and motivational interviewing and that's run over three weekends online via mm-hmm. zoom about three hours each module each module excuse me mm-hmm. and i've now got the advanced behavior change which looks at taking your mi skills your motivational interviewing skills and including cognitive behavioral therapy skills with it so as you've got a complete package of kind of psychological tools that you can work with when you're working with a client and so depending on what's happening with that client you can employ one or both of those tools because mi and cognitive behavioral therapy cpt they're used together quite a lot if you look at the research base the two are Intertwined quite often. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Brilliant. And how can we uh find you, Gary? Uh, my website just
1: above my head here is dub nice. dub stages of change or oneword word.co.uk mm-hmm. And on Instagram, Dr Gary Mendoza.
0: Brilliant stuff. Brilliant and Twitter
1: stuff. is Dr. Gary Mend. It's just the Mendoza mm-hmm.
0: short. Good stuff. No, thank you, Gary. Thank you for your time. Um, just before you do go. Is there a message that you want to, you know, give to people? like, Let's say the average Joe person looking to embark on their journey. You know, what message would you give to somebody to just really try to understand that, you know, this is a lifelong change and it's going to take time, etc.
1: Think as weight loss or fitness or whatever. Think of it as climbing a mountain. Mm. So when you've got to the point where you're really overweight or you're really unfit, whatever it might be, you are now at the summit. You've reached the peak of that mountain. You've got two choices at this point. You can either jump off, and generally jumping off a mountain injures you. It's not good for you. That's the quick fix. That's the six-week transformation, the 12-week. That's the diet plan. That's the quick fix. Or the better option, walk back down the other side. It will be a longer journey, but it will be a damn sight more comfortable and you'll get to where you want to get eventually. It won't be quick, but then getting to the top of that mountain wasn't quick either. Mm -hmm. I always say to people, you don't wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and go, "Ah, three stone, where did that come from? (laughs) It took years to get there and it Mm -hmm. may take years to get it off, Mm -hmm. but better to have a comfortable and enjoyable journey getting it off that you can stick with and enjoy it then jump off the mountain and injure yourself
0: yeah yeah that doesn't sound too appealing to be honest <laughs> brilliant well thank you for that gary um i look forward to work with you in the future and i'll be hopping on some courses for sure thank great. you for your time gary
1: great cheers tonight thanks for inviting great us on. enjoyed
0: the chat take care Bye. Bye-bye. bye bye bye